Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgesser. Today's guest is Mr. Milton Alimadi, a Ugandan-American author, journalist, professor, and publisher of Black Star News. Milton was born in the Pearl of Africa, Uganda, on March 4th, 1962, to a distinguished father, the former Prime Minister of Uganda, Mr. Erifasi Otema Alimadi, and his mother, Mrs. Alice Alimadi. Milton Alimadi is an economics graduate from Syracuse University, from whence he joined the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. His first job was as an intern at the Journal of Commerce before working at the Wall Street Journal. He subsequently worked as a freelance journalist for the New York Times, where he wrote some significant articles, including, among others, Inventing Africa, a piece that drew attention to a trend of white reporters fabricating stories about Africa. In 1997, he co-founded a New York-based investigative newspaper, Blackstar News. The highlight of his investigative career includes a piece criticizing Ugandan peacekeepers who were at the time seconded to the United Nations for acting as a proxy police force for the United States, and another piece highlighting the relief of black Americans after Donald Trump was defeated in the 2020 United States presidential election. Milton is the author of a number of significant books critiquing the racial stereotypes white writers perpetrate when writing about Africa and the African peoples. His greatest work by far, however, is his book, Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media. In addition to running his newspaper, Blackstar News, Milton divides his time between teaching as an adjunct assistant professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University and running a podcast, Kumbu Kenny, whose aim is, and I quote, decolonizing our minds. In this episode, we discuss the topic, how to decolonize Africa's toxic image. Mr. Alimadi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for hosting me. My pleasure. Your book, Manufacturing Hate, is dedicated to the memory of your beloved sister, Barbara Alimadi, a human rights activist who died prematurely in 2020 at the tender age of 48 years old. And your parents, Alice Alimadi and Otema Alimadi. Milton, please tell us something about your childhood with references to your sister, mother and father. And how did your relationship with them influence the man you subsequently became? Okay, well, thank you for that question. Uh, it's interesting 
part of my earliest memory is actually coming to the United States in the 1960s. I was probably maybe around four or five. At that time, my late father, Eri Fasi Otemalimadi, had been appointed ambassador to the United States and to the United Nations and High Commissioner to Canada. So my schooling actually began in the United States. And an incident happened that, of course, as a child, I did not carry much meaning to. I believe I was in the first grade when my teacher, a white lady, brought me in front of the class. And normally when teachers call you in front of the class, you think you've done something wrong. But I don't recall that I'd done anything wrong. And my, sis, my, my, my teacher informed the class that my father was an important chief in Africa and that I got to play with elephants and lions. And even as a kid, I was, of course, stunned and puzzled. That was the first that I was being informed that I played with elephants and lions. And I looked up at the teacher with this look of puzzlement, I imagine, and shock. And she squeezed my shoulder very firmly. Isn't that right, Milton? And I nodded and I said, yes. And she claimed other things I did, I guess, in the African jungles. And I kept acquiescing to this lie. Of course, it was only many, many years later as an adult when I can put these kinds of incidents in perspective. And I realized that I had, at that moment, been acquiescing and participating in promoting this stereotype propaganda about Africa. That was my one of my earliest memories in the United States and in, the, in my life, I guess. And then my family returned to Uganda after Idi Amin overthrew Milton Obote's government in 1971. And we lived in Uganda for about a year. My father retired into commercial farming. As you know, I mean, did not trust people that had served in Obote's government. So he had started eliminating them. And even as a boy of about 10 years old, I realized that things were really amiss when I would hear conversations, you know, grown-ups in whispered conversations when somebody went missing, a family friend went missing. So even at a young age, I guess I was beginning to get a taste of politics and the type of politics that are sort of endemic to countries like Uganda. That was one of my earliest memories. And then of course, Idi Amin tried to have my father killed. 
and he escaped into exile to Tanzania. When we followed some months later, meaning me, my mother, at that time, I'm my mother's eldest born. At that time, it was me. I'm talking 1972 now. It was me. It was Andrew. It was Walter, Sue, Doris, and baby Barbara. Barbara had been born after we returned to Uganda after we went through the government. My father had a friend who was still serving in Amin's intelligence services. And he helped us escape from Uganda. He created the fake documents we needed. Obviously, she could not be Mrs. Ali Salimadi. And I remember when we were at the border crossing into Kenya, we went through Kenya and then to Tanzania. At the border crossing, I think I still had a lot of memories of American TV and like superheroes and hacks of heroism. Because I'd made up my mind that I knew we were sneaking out of the country, even at the age of 10. I'd made up my mind that if anything went wrong and that they tried to prevent us from getting away, I was going to grab one of the guns of the soldiers or policemen and just start mowing them down to give my time family to escape. <laughs> and that comes when you have consumed too much American television, you know? <laughs> Fortunately, it never came to that. We escaped, we went to Kenya, and then soon joined our father in Tanzania. In Tanzania, at that time, the president was Julius Nyerere, a renowned intellectual and socialist. In Tanzania is really when my consciousness began to evolve. Tanzania hosted many of the liberation army movements at that time. Pretty much all of them had some presence in Tanzania in one of the training camps. And of course, you would meet some of them in the capital city, Dar es Salaam. So we are talking the African National Congress, we're talking Prelimo, we're talking Suapo, we're talking the MPLA of Angola, and all those other liberation movements. I started reading a lot, and my father encouraged that. Our living circumstances were very dire, you know, in exile, compared to the life we had become accustomed to. But that also teaches you humility and humanity. So my escape from the relative impoverishment was reading. Spent a lot of time in the libraries, the Tanzania National Library, the American United States Information Service, the British Council Library. My mother also encouraged my, my, my reading. My mother was a very kind, woman. That is the lesson I take from my mother. And my father as well. I think probably the reason they got together was they were very kind people. They were generous. They would give their last shilling to the dismay 
of their children. They would give their last shilling to somebody in need. So I think that sense of kindness and compassion was instilled in me from that young, early age. And that sense of standing up for people that are facing injustice. And that, of course, is one of what my late sister, Barbara, was renowned for in Uganda. She would lead protests. One of the most prominent protests was when Ingrid Turinawe, a leading member of the FDC political party, was humiliated and violated when policemen literally trying to drag her out of her vehicle by her breast. So that ugly assault really inspired my sister to organize a protest of young ladies who went to the police station and demanded to see the police inspector general at that time was General Kale Kayehura. And they did something which had not been done in those types of protests before. They literally took off their shirts and exposed their bras and said, how dare you violate womanhood? How dare you violate somebody's mother? And that protest really gained traction. And in fact, there's a video of it on YouTube that I believe has almost 5 million viewers now. I don't know exact number, but viewership is in the millions. And that really galvanized women in Uganda toward that type of protest, challenged the system. And the most interesting thing that she confided to me, because of course she led several other protests and she was arrested many times. She said, this is the most remarkable thing that happened. As soldiers and police literally sometimes carried her and lifted her into these vehicles to whisk her away, they would say, sister, we're with you. Keep it up. Keep it up. That to me was a very powerful revelation that on the one hand, you have these enforcers of the dictatorship in Uganda. I guess you can say, quote unquote, doing their job. At the same time, they also yearn for the kind of Uganda that my sister was struggling for. So you can imagine the profound sadness I felt and still feel today when my sister suddenly passed away. And that is one of the reasons why the book is dedicated to her. And of course, for my parents, for the kindness and the sense of you know, obligation to stand up for justice that they imparted. In your preface to Manufacturing Hate, you write, and I quote, I wrote Manufacturing Hate, how Africa was demonized in Western media to fight stereotypical racist representations of Africans and people of African descent and the ignorance and cover-ups that go with them, end of quotations. Milton, please define for us what you mean by demonization of the African people in Western media. And 
Suppose I were a white Englishman in Middle England. Let's say Buckinghamshire for argument's sake. Could you please give me a specific example of the demonization of the African people you speak of to help me understand clearly what you mean? Absolutely. In fact, I'll go to the tail end of the question and then tie it with the beginning of the question. If you are a white Englishman in Buckinghamshire, I imagine, and I hate to make this presumption, but I imagine I would not be wrong that you would probably believe that you are somehow better than an African, perhaps intellectually, maybe morally, maybe physically, it would be difficult to me, for me to imagine that you would not think that way, that you would think otherwise. And that can be explained by the historical demonization of Africa and Africans and people of African descent. How did you acquire any knowledge that you have? of an African or of Africa. What type of knowledge was that? Who taught you that? In what context were you taught that? It is atypical for the history of Africa to be taught in a holistic way, other than Africa and Africans representing the other relative to what is considered to be normal in the Western world. So it is hard to imagine that a European or somebody of European ancestry that does not go out of his way to learn more than what is typically taught in their curriculum, in their media, in all the narrative that they have encountered about Africa that they would not succumb to the notion that Africans are the most inferior of the human family. And that goes to the history of demonization. It is tied in. It is something that had been conducted for centuries. It was part of the total narrative of engagement of what is now known as the Western world with Africa and other non-European societies, by the way. But of course, my work focuses on Africa, but of course, it has tangential relationship and bearing to other non-European societies too. And what was the context of that engagement? It was conquest. It was conquest during the era of enslavement you can go back all the way to the 15th century when the Pope literally gave a blessing for the conquest of Africans, enslavement of Africans. You know, and we are talking, this is supposed to be a Christian Pope. 
And that was rationalization for enslaving other human beings. Because if they are elevated to the status of full human familyhood, how could you be enslaving them? So to eliminate that contradiction, that is when the narrative of white supremacy really began to be promoted to justify enslaving other human beings and exploiting them, essentially for profit, of course, to extort their surplus for the benefit of others. And that, of course, is how the divide that maintains today was historically constructed. Enslavement, then followed by colonization, you still needed the, uh, the same narrative. Now, the allegation was that these are heathens, we're bringing Christianity and civilization to the so-called dark continent. And while the intensity of the demonization um, have diminished, they've not been eliminated because we still have a global exploitative system where surplus is extracted from the so-called lesser developed parts of the world, uh, primarily Africa, today in the 21st century, exploiting the labor of people in Africa, exploiting their resources. And you can only do that when you have a diminished compassion when you don't see them as equal to you as fellow human beings. When a European from the United Kingdom could not rationalize doing something like that to Europeans in France or Germany and vice versa. But all of them collectively can sleep with themselves. I mean, sleep comfortably without losing much sleep, I guess is the best way I want to describe it, while doing that type of exploitation, focusing it on Africa and Africans, you see? So if I were to meet a European who has not been exposed to the other side of the narrative, which is what I attempt to provide in my book, Manufacturing Hate, having not been exposed to that narrative, I would be shocked if that European in the United Kingdom did not believe that he was indeed inferior, I, I'm sorry, superior to an African in every meaningful sense of the word. And that is the legacy of centuries of demonization. Again, in your preface, you write, and I quote, Africans are still referred to as tribal peoples, with all the attendant negative perceptions that spring from the word, sometimes with deadly consequences. When Tusi insurgents invaded ethnically volatile Rwanda from Uganda in 1990, and the war degenerated into genocidal killings in 1994. Western media referred to the conflict as tribal. 
in an infamous article published in its April 25th, 1994 issue. Times magazine conjured up images of cannibalism by claiming that tribal bloodlust was fueling the war, end of quotations. Milton, please tell the listener, what is wrong with the word tribe when writing about Africa and African peoples? And are you seriously suggesting there is no such a thing as tribe in Africa? Very good. I will also start with the tail end of that question. We are all either tribes, tribal and tribesmen, or we are not. We must not reserve that, those terminologies to describe Africans. It has serious connotations with serious impacts. If something is described as tribal in Africa, Europeans have a certain type of understanding of what that means. If something is described, a conflict is described as a tribal war, to the European it means a war that makes no sense, a war involving no legitimate issues. It is a war that is just conforming to the African tendency to inherently want to engage in war. And that is why it was very dangerous for Time Magazine, who went beyond tribal, it's a tribal bloodlust. Bloodlust. Just think about that word. And to the European mind, many European minds, that can only evoke the image of cannibalism. So now you have a conflict that is essentially tribal, plus it's being driven by bloodlust. You don't need to know anything more beyond that. There are no legitimate issues of power struggle, whether it be right or wrong. There are no legitimate issues of ethnic tension or segmentation. There's no legitimate issue of access to land and resources. So while the conflict could be comparable to some of the bloodshed we saw in the Balkans in the past, certainly that was not described as tribal or being driven by tribal bloodlust. There were issues that at least the combatants considered were legitimate, whether it was related to religion, to power, access to land, resources, to employment. And that is why it's very dangerous when we allow conflicts in Africa to be characterized as tribal. In fact, that was one of the arguments that colonial regimes used to legitimize colonialism, claiming 
they had come all the way from Europe to stamp tribal wars. <laughs> In fact, even the apartheid regime said they needed apartheid in South Africa to prevent tribal wars between Zulu, Hossa, and all the other nationalities in South Africa. Even as late as the 1990s, after Nelson Mandela was released, when the apartheid regime was still fueling conflict, deliberately instigating conflict, arming elements of the Inkata party to fight against members of the ANC and create that sense of a country that would collapse if apartheid came to an end and Africans took the mantle of state. So that is the danger of accepting the use of the word tribe, tribal and tribesmen to characterize Africa, Africans, and any issues of contestations or conflict in Africa. We must go beyond those labels. So for example, if we look at the conflict that really decimated and continues to decimate Eastern Congo, and in some quarters, they've been described as tribal. That of course is absolute nonsense. That conflict has created hundreds of millions of dollars for Western corporations who support proxy armies on their behalf that are sent from Uganda and Rwanda to cause all that bloodshed ethnically cleanse Eastern Congo, while at the same time, hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of resources are being illegally extracted from that region and exported through Uganda and through Rwanda to Western cities around the world. So the use of the T word has been abused by the colonial regime, by the apartheid regime, and by the contemporary exploitators of Africa, by disguising and masking their true agenda. At page 29 of your book, you write, and I quote, Walter Rodney, the Guyanese historian and author of the classic book, How Europe and a Developed Africa, has argued that while historical racism can be traced to an earlier era, it was when the capitalist mode of production emerged, along with the advent of production on plantations in the 17th century, that racism became institutionalized as a factor of the production system, end of quotations. Milton, please define institutional racism and what can we do to challenge rules, processes, practices, attitudes, assumptions, 
habits and behaviors in our public institutions that amount to racial discrimination through prejudice and stereotyping. Well, I think the best example of institutionalized racism was apartheid South Africa. Then, of course, we have the United States. But I think in South Africa, they made no pretense about it. Apartheid became official law in 1948, where the goods, the benefits that you enjoyed from society was directly based on your so-called race. And here for a second, I say so-called race because as we know, historically, race is a social construct. And as Rodney points out in that excellent lecture that he gave at Columbia University, I believe it was in 1979, when he spoke about race and class in Guyanese politics, but it really applies to all societies. And he showed how there was a distinction between racism before the global expansion of capital, where he's not saying there was no racism, but it was a sort of racism that he called a, a quirk, individual racism. Obviously, in an ideal world, you don't want even that to exist. But you could survive under those circumstances. But when race becomes the determinant factor in how you earn a living, in how you earn income, in the quality of your life, it becomes part of the institution, and in South Africa, legalized, legalized racism is what apartheid was. You have access to the best jobs within a corporate setting. You have access to the commanding positions, the most senior positions, the best compensation. You have access to the best schools for your children, the best hospitals, the best neighborhoods to live, the best quality of life based on your complexion. That is what institutional racism is. In South Africa, it was so perverse, they had a law which was enforced by something called the population registrar. So each person was placed into a certain race category with Europeans at the top, enjoying the best that society could offer, followed by the so-called colored, 
which was an official designation in South Africa, and it still is today, people of mixed ancestry, European and African, and then with Africans at the bottom rung. Indians were not considered citizens and were not part of the race register. Now here was the most perverse part. You could appeal your racial designation. So you can actually get a lawyer and go to court and say, honorable judge, I am not a colored. I'm actually European. And they would examine the texture of your hair, the size and shape of your nose, your lips, your ears, and whatever type of other examination that they conducted. And if you won your case, I imagine the person that brought such a legal action would see it as a blessing to now be upgraded to European. And an African could also get a lawyer and go to court and say, honorable justice, a mistake has been made. I am not an African. I am a colored person. And that person would be subjected to the same types of examinations. And if he was lucky, he would come out of the courtroom singing his blessings that he's now been upgraded to colored. So you can imagine what type of this conduct, what it does to the psyche, what it does to the psyche and the spirit of a black person in South Africa. To believe that by denying who you are, because to enjoy the benefits of life, you have to be closer to the standard measure, which is European. I think South Africa historically provided the best definition of what institutionalized racism was all about, the most glaring example. And then, of course, we have to varying and lesser degrees in all parts of the world. And in modern society, of course, we now have laws. You can go to court. And now, rather than claiming I'm not African or Black, you actually say I was denied this position because I'm African or Black. And you can force the corporation to produce data showing how many Africans you have in executive positions, in leadership. How many do you have in middle management? How many do you have in the lowest rungs in this corporation? So we have that measure. And that is the legalistic measure that we, of course, need to enforce. Enforce companies that are in violation of existing laws to change, to change their hiring practices, but also to pay punitive damages. And that is one of the incentives that now forces companies who want to avoid paying 
millions of dollars for those illegal practices to adapt their ways. But at the same time, we have to engage in the types of conversations that I try to open up through my book, Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media. I want to show that it was not just a quirk. It was not an issue of Europeans going around the world and saying, we're superior to you. But why were they insisting that they were superior? And by making that connection and explanation and showing that it was simply to rationalize exploitation, by tying that history to contemporary challenges we face, it gives us even a better understanding of some of our contemporary issues and problems. And it also, of course, informs how we can create better societies going forward. Continuing with our theme of institutional racism, in chapter four of your book, you write, and I quote, Earlier, on December 14th, 1934, hoping to forestall war, Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie urged the League of Nations, the predecessor organization to the United Nations, to prevent Mussolini from ordering an invasion. End of quotations. You continue elsewhere thus, and I quote, Selassie was to make the bitter discovery that the collective world security did not apply to Ethiopians, or to borrow from the New York Times characterization, semi-civilized populations, end of quotations. Now, the recent history of the United Nations suggests that nothing has really changed. In 1994, we were treated to the United Nations utter powerlessness to stop or intervene in the Rwanda genocide. We were also treated to a spectacle of the UN's seeming indifference in the First Congo War of 1996 to 1997 and again in 1998 to 1999. In both wars, millions of Africans perished. Moreover, the United Nations was astonishingly silent throughout the 20-year-long war in northern Uganda, in which countless lives were lost. Milton, what is it about Africa and her peoples that makes the collective world utterly indifferent to the great suffering of the black African people? I think the short answer to that is the intensity of the historical demonization. It has been so profound and so intense and has lasted so long without adequate challenge in our contemporary times. China and Chinese 
India and Indians were subjected to that type of demonization too, but not as intense as uh, what Africans have been subjected to historically. They were never enslaved en masse in the southern plantations of the United States for centuries, from one generation to the other. But they were also demonized in the process of expansion of global capital and conquest and domination. I had a friend, the late Les Payne, whom I considered a mentor and a great journalist, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, which is considered one of the top honors in American journalism. And his book, which came out posthumously, was finished by his daughter, Tamara Payne, called The Dead Are Rising, The Life of Malcolm X. Yeah, this is his book. Les was a brilliant guy, and he reminded me, he said, you know, he was over 10 years older than me, so I considered him a mentor. I said, Milton, when I was growing up, there were two sayings. One was three sayings, actually. One was, finish your food. Think about the starving people in India. Or think about the starving people in Africa. You don't hear that saying for India anymore. You still hear that for Africa. There was another saying in the United States. You don't stand a Chinaman's chance. And that was meaning you something you could never be able to accomplish, you know. The Chinese were allegedly notorious in being slackers, not being able to accomplish anything. So it was a saying among you know, people in the United States, you don't stand a Chinaman's chance. Of course, today, China is a global superpower. So that kind of image does not exist anymore. If China is demonized, it is because there's a fear that China has now become a global competitor on the capitalist world scene, you see? So the motives would be different. But for Africa, that notion of Africans being the most inferior human beings is prevalent, not only among Europeans, but to many people in India as well, to many people in China as well. So that is an important distinction that I wanted to make. But let me walk back a little bit to parts of the question. I just wanted to present that broader context, beginning with Mussolini, Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. Basically, the fascist leader of Italy, Benito Mussolini, wanted to avenge the Italian defeat at the hands of Empress Taitu and Emperor Menelik at the Battle of Adwa on March 1, 1896, when an invading imperial Italian army defeated by an African army. 
And as a result, Ethiopia was the only African country not to be conquered during the colonial conquest of Africa in the last two decades of the 19th century. So that was really humiliating to Europeans and to Italians in particular. And they always wanted to get revenge. So that was their revenge, that invasion. Ethiopia was, of course, the only African country, I believe Liberia as well, the African countries that were members of the legal nation, which, of course, was supposed to prevent the kind of Holocaust of the previous wars, including World War I, to be repeated. So the emperor, Selassie, made an appeal to other members, fellow members, as he said, of the League of Nations. But they all turned deaf ears to his plea and did nothing as Mussolini invaded. A very vicious invasion, which I think there's still a case for compensation, even up today in the 21st century when the Italians used mustard gas massively, killing tens of thousands of Ethiopian soldiers and civilians. And that is what I meant when I said Selassie found out that there was international law for Europeans and a whole different system altogether for an African nation or empire such as Ethiopia. And then, of course, you're absolutely right that in our contemporary era, we have seen the same indifference. Rwanda, rather than sending more of an intervention force to stop the genocide of 1994, international troops were withdrawn. And one of, of course, the reasoning behind it was that American President Clinton at the time did not believe that an intervention force could make a significant difference because he too believed this was a tribal conflict that is beyond the comprehension of sane people, and those are my words, of course, sane people. And for that reason, there was no intervention. The same thing with the wars of Holocaust proportions in the Congo. The same thing with the decimation that occurred in the northern part of Uganda for more than 20 years, even though Jan Egelan, who was the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, went there and he said, he went to the northern part of Uganda and said this was the world's most ignored catastrophe at that time. His organization, an organization for which he was a senior official, did nothing about that. And today, ironically, conflict continues in Eastern Congo. 
where the UN has one of its largest so-called peacekeeping forces, of more than 15,000, essentially just standing there and doing nothing. I believe that we need to do multiple things. Number one, we have to force non-Africans to keep re-evaluating their notion of understanding and perception of who Africans are as a people. Do they remain the other? And why is that? That's number one. Number two, and this is where the terminology such as tribe and tribal comes into play. We have to insist that we just don't dismiss conflicts in African settings as tribal. We examine some of the legitimate issues that are involved in these conflicts. Is it monopolization of power by the state to the neglect and detriment of other regions within the same country? Are there issues of colonial drawn borders that separate African families with large parts of the family on the other side of the border in another African state? And of course, those are issues, many of those issues are issues that we as Africans need to address ourselves. I'm happy to see many of the conversations on social media by young people now focusing on issues such as a borderless Africa, so that some of the visions articulated by people like Kwame Nkrumah in the 1960s, when they formed the Organization of African Unity and had a vision of a United States of Africa. So, I'm pleased to see that young people are reviving that conversation in such a massive way. So there's a role that we as Africans on the ground need to play. But at the same time, we cannot ignore that the dominant powers whose decisions still have disproportionately tremendous impact on the lives of Africans, that we engage them in these conversations as well. We make it very difficult for them to dismiss Africa's challenges as something that is, as if it's something that is unique to Africa, as if other countries and regions have not gone through those types of historical evolutions. I just, and that's why I started by giving the example of China and India. And I also give those examples to offer hope that if those societies could transform and continue on their transformation and development, that it can also be done in Africa and for Africans. And this is one 
data that I often use. In 1960, according to the World Bank, the per capita income of China was about $90. The per capita income of Ghana at that time was about $189. So we are talking about Ghana at one point having per capita income essentially double that of China to today China being a global industrial and economic power with a per capita income that is more than five times, perhaps six, that of Ghana. And of course, Ghana, nevertheless, is one of the better performing economies in Africa with a per capita income of about 2,500. But China's is uh, about 16 or 17,000 and continues to grow. So if China could do it by taking command of its resources and using its resources to build up China's economy, there's hope that at some point, if Africans take control of their resources to build wealth and prosperity in Africa, that the narrative and perception of Africa and the outside world will also begin to change. The title of our podcast is How to Decolonize Africa's Toxic Image. Now, you dedicate chapter 14 of your book to Africa and the Black Inferiority Complex. And at page 107, you share an anecdote about a noted historian, Professor Molefi Kete Asante, who, in a review of Out of Africa, A Black Man Confronts Africa, made the following comment, and I quote, A sad testimony of an individual who is caught caught in a spiral of psychic pain produced by what Franz Fanon and Robert C. Smith calls internal inferiorization. Rich Bag sees Africans as his enemies and this is the beginning of his problem. From this vantage point, There is nothing good that can be said about Africa or Africans, end of quotations. Milton, what is the root cause of this inferiority complex you speak of? And what can we do to change this reality? Well, it is, of course, the narrative that accompanies the global subjugation of non-European societies historically. There's a very interesting book that I highly recommend, Capitalism and Slavery by the late Eric Williams. 
who was the also the first prime minister of Trinidad. It's so interesting that many people are not aware that it was not always racist demonization uh, that was used to rationalize exploitation. So for example, in the earliest era, so-called riffraff of beggars could be snatched off the streets in London and ferried off to work on the plantations in the Caribbean. Some were literally bought from jailers. People who had been incarcerated were kidnapped and taken to those parts of the world. It was at a later stage that racism was used to justify subjecting Africans to conditions which at one point Europeans were subjecting other Europeans. And Eric Williams makes this distinction, Rodney makes this distinction in his work to get us to think about the importance of the common human family. And that it was not always Africans that were subjected to those kinds of exploitations. And that while race and racism has been made such a critical part of the narrative, it is at the same time very superficial and it could have been something else. And at one point it was indeed something else. So that gives us hope that race and racism may not necessarily be a permanent position. So I wanted to bring that out first. However, this in no way diminishes the impact of race and racism. So for example, we've discussed the situation of apartheid South Africa and some of its impact on Africans who wanted to be designated as colored and colored who wanted to be designated as European. And in a country like the United States, a person like Keith Richburg, who was of African ancestry in Africa, he would be pointed out as a fellow African. His heritage is Caribbean. But his mindset was very reactionary, very colonized. To him, it was a lifetime attempt to run away from his Africanness. And I just bring this up to put his mindset in a broader context. In his own book, he described how when he was a kid, his own father would tell him not to play with the so-called 
N-word. And I can't use the word itself, but people understand what the N-word means. So don't play with those children who are N-word. Look at their homes. Their lawns are not properly kept. Their hair not properly trimmed or combed. Unlike us, we are not the N-word people. And when he used to go with his brother to watch uh, to the film theater, and then when they were, they were showing trailers, I guess back in the day, they showed those types of trailers, said they would show the British soldiers fighting Zulu tribesmen. And him and his brother would take turns playing the role. So one would take play the role of the British soldiers and the other would have to take the role of the Zulu tribesmen. And he said how the person who was designated the role of the Zulu tribesmen would sit there sulking and sullen and demoralized, but also hopeful because knowing that they would soon be playing the role of the British soldiers. So that was their own way and his own way of escaping from his Africanness into Europeanness or whiteness. So Molefi Asante, Professor Asante is criticizing one particular passage from the book written by Keith Richberg, who was had been a reporter and later on became an editor at the Washington Post, which of course is uh, one of the premier newspapers in the United States. And Richburg recalled how he had covered the Rwanda genocide. And there's a part where he describes how he felt as he saw the bodies floating on the Akagera River. And he said to himself, Oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Had his family not been kidnapped and taken into slavery, he would be one of those victims. So he thanks the day that his family was taken into slavery. And that is as sad as it gets when the African has been completely destroyed and has succumbed to the historical intense and unrelenting racist demonization of African people. And this is also an issue that Steve Biko, the late Steve Biko dealt with superbly in his book I write what I like. He talks about black consciousness. And there's a chapter called We Blacks. And he talks about the impact of historical demonization, which has forced many Africans to surrender and to give up, saying we can't resist them. They are indeed superior. We are indeed inferior. And of course, Biko became 
very prominent and influential. When he broke that code, he said no. And in one of his passages, he puts it very brilliantly when he says the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. So he says that is where liberation really begins by rejecting the demonization and stereotypes, being taught to hate yourself, to hate your history, to hate your legacy, to be taught that you had no achievement. And of course, in South Africa, it began from a very early age, when children are in primary school, when African spirituality is referred to as superstition, But nobody makes that when Christians idolize a cross. That is not supposed to be superstition, right? So those are the kind of issues that Steve Pico raises. He says it has to begin inward. It has to begin from inside. There's a passage that I like from Pico's book. He says the first step, therefore, is to make the black man come to himself, to pump black life into his empty shell, to infuse him with pride and dignity, to remind him of his complicity in the crime of allowing himself to be misused, and therefore testing evil to reign supreme in the country of his birth. And that is how he defines black consciousness. I think Keith Richburg, hopefully in his lifetime, will embrace black consciousness. And I would also like to think that Manufacturing hate is not just intended to lift black consciousness or infuse black consciousness. I see it as something that can also liberate European mindsets that still harbor the racist notion of Africans as the other. The Colombia Journalism Review's mission is, and I quote, to be the intellectual leader in the rapidly changing world of journalism, the most respected voice on press criticism, and make media leaders and journalists smarter about their work through its fast-turn analysis and deep reporting. CJR is an essential venue, not just for journalists, but also for the thousands of professionals in communications, technology, academia, and other fields reliant on solid media industry knowledge, end of quotations. Now, the British 
Guardian newspaper published an editorial on March 28, 2023, entitled The Guardian View on Our Links to Slavery A Necessary Reckoning with the Past. It concluded thus, and I quote, We have to guard not only against old prejudices, but also against the new, which are being constantly created, end of quotations. Milton, as someone who has corresponded with the New York Times editors on the sensitive issue of demonization of black Africans in the media, since your days at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism in 1992. How critical are truth, integrity, and honesty in journalism? Truth, integrity, and honesty will set you free. I think I was relatively very naive when I was at Columbia Journalism School. I mean, I knew the history of historical racism, of course. Not as much as I got to know after I did my research at the Columbia Journalism School, where my focus This was the first opportunity I ever had to do an in-depth study of how the perception of toward Africa and Africans evolved in the Western world. So I focused my study and critique on the New York Times because it's a global publication. It has tremendous influence and impact, and it has a very rich historical archive. The paper was founded in 1851. Some of the earliest articles about Africa date to 1877. And of course, one of those early editorials was headlined Africa. And it was basically making a justification of European conquest in Africa. As you know, one of the most defining occasions was the Berlin Conference. November 1884 to February 1885, when European countries formally met and officially partitioned the African continent. So we're talking, this article is 1877, just a few years before the Berlin Conference. There was already contestation, and the editorial was saying England should rush in before Germany. grab much of Africa. And it was making, the editorial has one of the most preposterous justifications. So the demonization was well set at that time. So it said Africans are afflicted because you know, part of the African was still associated, and I have no idea what this meant, was associated with the crocodile, 
and the ancient hippopotamus. But at the same time, they had elements of human sensibilities as well. And therefore, they were so afflicted because part of them animal and part of them human being. And the best cure, and I'm paraphrasing here, the best cure for this would be European civilization and conquest. So this is part of the earliest types of demonization in the New York Times. And then I studied that through the decades. I brought it to the era of colonial rule. I brought it to the era of decolonization and up to the struggle against apartheid in the 1980s, because I'm doing this master's paper in the early 1990s now. But then I went one step farther. I wanted to interview some of the former Times reporters who were sent to Africa and the editors who had been here in New York. Eventually, I did get to interview some of them. But I also was fortunate to have had access to the New York Times archives. And I dug up some very ugly correspondence exchange between reporters sent to Africa and editors here in New York. And I used part of that you know, narrative for my paper. One particular reporter, famous reporter, his name was Homer Bigart, B-I-G-A-R-T. Many people that have read my work now refer to him as Homer Bigart. He wrote a letter to his editor because they sent him to cover Uhuru, decolonization in Africa. So he wrote a letter from, uh, from, uh, from Ghana to his editor in New York. And he was complaining about how he could not get enthusiastic about the so-called emerging republics, you know, in Africa. He said the leaders like, uh, you know, Kwame Nkrumah were essentially uh, witch doctors. He said uh, he preferred the primitive bush people because after all, cannibalism is the best antidote to this population explosion that everybody's talking about. And then I went and said, let me read the articles published around that time in the New York Times with his name, his byline. And there was a perfect correlation between the demonization of Africans and his private correspondence with this editor and what were published in the New York Times uh, purporting to be, uh, to be news articles by, uh, by, by uh, Homer Bigart. There were definitely incidents of him even concocting. There was one time he wrote a letter to his editor complaining that he could not find pygmies to interview about what the meaning of independence was for them when he went from Ghana to represent Belgium, Congo. But then when his letter came, when his article was published in the New York Times, he's quoting, saying, pygmies to pygmies, independence means more beer, 
more soft. It's the most ugly types of stereotypes. And of course, Congo was one of the countries that had suffered one of the worst colonial regimes when under King Leopold, an estimated 10 million Congolese were exterminated when they were not producing sufficient rubber and ivory. And the history books are famous with those famous uh, photos of Congolese with severed limbs, hands cut off, feet cut off, with some holding parts of the limbs of their contemporaries, was so outrageous that even the other Leopold's peers, other colonial powers, were outraged if there is such a word uh, to categorize them. And it was removed from Congo being his private property. So to the European colonialists at the time, it was an improvement by upgrading it to a colony <laughs> of Belgium. Big Art and the New York Times could have tried to find any elderly Congolese who may have remembered that era, whose relatives were victims of that era, to interview them of what Uhuru, what independence now means. Instead, they're busy denigrating and demonizing Congolese. In fact, I actually found a letter written by a reporter, a New York Times reporter named Lloyd Garrison. He's a descendant of the famous American abolitionist, William Garrison. And he was sending it in, the, in 1967 from Nigeria. He had covered the Biafran War, the War of Succession. And he was complaining but what he saw in his article, after he read his published version of his article, the editor sitting here in New York had inserted a scene describing pagans in grass leaves, wearing grass leaf skirts. Something he had not seen, something he had not written about. But his editor sitting in New York felt his article was not sufficiently African enough and took it upon themselves. You know, in today's era, they would call it fake news, right? They simply concocted out of thin air what in their minds would conform to an African setting and inserted it in that article. So eventually I finished my master's paper. I was uh, honored when the paper won one of the awards that are given out to students at the end of the academic year. It's called the James Wechsler uh, Prize. And then Columbia Journalism Review invited me to submit it for publication. And I felt honored for a second time that this research is bearing fruit. Now more people will get to know about the historical demonization in Africa and its consequences. So the review is widely respected. 
in the world of journalism and beyond. And then I saw an issue of the review come out without my article. Okay. Second issue came out without my article. And then I was wondering what is going on. I'm about to graduate. I would like to see it published before I graduate. So I contacted the review's editor, his name was Michael Hoyt, by phone. And I said, what's going on with my article? And he said, oh, it's not going to be published. I said, really? When were you going to tell me this? I said, never mind. What is the reason? He says, well, two editors voted in support of publishing it. Two voted in opposition, and the executive editor, it was Suzanne Levine, voted the decisive negative vote. I said, and what was the opposition? What was the reason for the opposition? I said, there's a feeling that these things happened a long time ago. I said, really? How can you write about history without going back a long time ago? I said, never mind. I would like to have my article returned. He said, why? <laughs> it was the most perplexing question. I said, what do you mean, why? It's my article, and you've just informed me it is no longer going to be published. So that is why I would like it back. He said, but it's not the same as what you gave us. I said, that's precisely why I must have it back. And I physically went to his office and I retrieved my article. And I was very perplexed and wondering what was going on. And I walked out of his office even before I entered the elevator. I started looking at it because I was very puzzled. I wanted to see why it was no longer the same. And there is a passage in that version, their version of my article, which means they had actually had a serious debate and at one time were actually about to publish it. This is what they wrote on my behalf in the beginning of the article. Recently, the Times granted me access to its archives, including correspondences from the 1950s when the paper sent Big Art to Africa on a temporary assignment. After studying the archival material, I interviewed several present and former Times reporters. The following excerpts from that material and from lengthy interviews are not intended as an indictment of the Times, whose African coverage has occasionally been distinguished but as a means of highlighting a problem that all news organizations need to address, end quote. This to me was clear proof that there was fear as to how the New York Times would react to the publication of my master's paper. Of course, I was very disappointed I was beginning to learn how the real world operates. First, I had to get beyond the shock that Columbia Journalism Review 
whose stated duty was to be the sort of arbiter in journalism would number one, censor itself. And then number two, decide not to even publish the article itself. In other words, they were ceding their stated obligation and role and function. What was their function then? So I decided to do them a favor. I wrote to the publisher of the New York Times, Arthur Ox Salzberger, and I said a bitter gripe, end quote, had lodged in my chest as the result of the CJR's journalistic betrayal because of the editor's fears of the Times. I had been made to feel as if I had committed a crime when, in fact, had gone into the paper's archives and discovered evidence of culpability by Times editors and reporters in perpetuating racist stereotyping of Africans. The managing editor at the time, Joseph Lelyveld, wrote to me and acknowledged that I had uncovered crude and ugly material. We're talking 1992. I proposed that I write an op-ed, an editorial, outlining what I had done, how the dry times has traveled since that early era where it was at that time, 1992, possible lessons from that past for the present and the future. That proposal was not accepted because I never got a response. Of course, I continued the research over the years and ultimately, I was able to find a publisher for Manufacturing Hate, how Africa was demonizing Western media. Now, let's go back to The Guardian's editorial of March 28, 2023. Of course, it is West welcome. At a time when we are re-examining the histories and narratives that have led us to where we are today, that is very important and critical, and needs to happen. And I find the problem is that you have a major publication like the New York Times still preferring to bury its head in the sand, you know, which of course is very hypocritical, particularly given the fact that in December 2020, the New York Times had a long article about the Kansas City Star, which had just apologized for its historical demonization for black citizens of Kansas. So I approached the Times once again. We're talking the first engagement being 1992. Now we're talking. 2022, 20, 2023. And I wrote to the current publisher, who is a grandson, I believe, of the publisher whom I wrote to in 92. 
Salzburger, A.G. Salzburger. He goes by initials. And I said, now that the Times has written an article about the Kansas City Star's apology for its historical demonization of African descendants in Kansas, isn't it time for the New York Times to also own up to its own history and its historical demonization of Africa that I covered in my paper that I first shared with the Times decades ago, and now I share with you once again in the form of a book. I have received no response, and it's been over a year now since I wrote. Like I wrote twice. The first time was when the book came out, my book came out in 2021. I have a friend who actually writes reviews for the New York Times, and he gave me the name of an editor and said, I'm very confident that editor will have this book reviewed. So when the book initially had just come out, I sent it to that book editor, and I personally was not shocked when I got no response <laughs> from that book editor. And again, I was not shocked when I did not hear later after I wrote to the publisher. They keep locking themselves in a very difficult situation. You cannot write about other people having conversations of re-examining the past narratives and its impact today without owning up to your own. That is highly hypocritical. I think it's a position that is not sustainable. I think eventually enough people will know about the material that I have dug up and will start asking the New York Times to explain why is it that having had knowledge of this material from 1992, you have not been bold enough to own up to it. While you yourself write articles about statues being physically pulled down of people who were once celebrated and somehow the fact that there were enslavers uh, at a certain era could be ignored, but does not, cannot be avoided now or pretended away in contemporary conversations. You write about those issues and those debates, and yet somehow you think that your own role is beyond questioning. I think that's unsustainable. I don't see it as something that can last uh, permanently. Milton, what is the most important lesson you've learned in your life? I think I've learned that many of the alleged differences that divide us, divide the world, 
divide nations, divide people, divide so-called nationalities, races, religions. Much of that have been social constructs. And that is actually why I deliberately chose the title Manufacturing Hate as the main title, and then the subtitle being how Africa was demonized in Western media. But you could take Manufacturing Hate for many, many other aspects of human relations, whether it's involving families, whether it's involving different countries, whether it's involving nationalities, religions, you know? And I think once we teach enough people that a lot of the differences that we take so seriously are actually very superficial, one of my favorite lectures is actually Race and Class in Guyanese Politics. Highly recommended. I think it's on YouTube. And that's the lecture that Walter Rodney gave at Columbia University. And he shows how the British colonial planter class, the ruling elite, was able to, after slavery was abolished in Guyana, the bulk of the slave labor had been provided by Africans, African descendants. And now the planter class needed labor. You can't compel the formerly enslaved to now work. So what did they do? They went to the subcontinent of India, brought ethnic Indians. And Rodney explains how within a short time, they were casting racial abuses at each other. And he says, how could they, without even enough time for any incidents to manifest itself that would justify those types of hostility. And he says it was essentially manipulated. It was manufactured by the British planter ruling class. Because so long as Indians and Africans were busy fighting between themselves, they did not have time or even the concept of realizing that, wait, we are the ones who are being exploited. <laughs> if we came together and made common demands together, we would yield benefits, we extract concessions from the ruling class that would benefit us collectively. But the notion of race is so powerful and so emotional that it blinds so many people on things that unite them more than the things that divide them. You know, the N-word, for example, is very charged and emotional that it still exists up today in the United States. And to use an example of what Rodney uses in Guyana, and of course Rodney was a member of the Working Family Alliance Party, which was a party that was trying to bring Africans and Indians together in Guyana, to use that same analysis to the United States, 
I remember when President Obama managed to get through after a lot of hard political work, so-called Obamacare, right? Healthcare, widely available healthcare, affordable for the first time in the United States. Many Americans of European ancestry in the South, where racism is much more intense at a certain level than in the North, were rejecting Obamacare. Well, nothing to do with something that had been created by this black man, <laughs> even though they have no health care coverage. Just think about how insane that is. That's the kind of insanity that Rodney was pointing out in Guyana. And in that same lecture, Rodney says in a number of African countries, that same kind of dynamics. Now it's the so-called T word, right? So-called tribe is manipulated and engineered by the ruling political elite as well. And he was giving the example of Kenya and, and Kenyatta, you know, playing the, you know, the T card so that the working people in Kenya could not raise questions that, wait a minute, we thought some things were supposed to change after the end of European colonial rule. Why are you, Mr. African President Kenyatta, grabbing all this land for yourself and your family? But he was able to divert conversation from those type of questions by engaging in manufactured ethnic or so-called tribal hostilities. So I, I think I could say the most critical thing I've learned is how to analyze and how to avoid succumbing to superficial issues. I think the more people that learn that, uh, the better chance we have to create a much, much better world. Milton, please advise our listeners where they may find your book, Manufacturing Hate. Okay, that is now becoming a challenge in and of itself. I do not like uh, speculating. I like dealing with, with facts. As a person who teaches both journalism and history, so let me lay out some facts. When my book was published, I would get decent royalty checks on a regular basis. So I know the book is moving. For quite some time, I have not been getting decent royalty checks. And a number of things have happened in the meantime. I have had people contact me who say they have ordered the book via Amazon and they've been waiting a very long time and not getting it even ordering it from the publisher and not getting it in a timely way. And that raises the question, why would the publisher of a book that people are demanding for, not making it widely available? I do not have the answer to that yet. Of course, it now opens the questions to a number of speculation, you know? 
But those are still the only ways of getting the book. Until at some stage, I make a determination that maybe it is better for me um, to reacquire the copyrights and then explore how to make the book much more readily available. The people that have been able to order it and to get the book, um, I think have benefited tremendously by for the first time realizing how major publication like the New York, New York Times was engaged in actively, actually, even to the extent of concocting a certain perception toward Africans. So for the time being, those are the only ways of getting the book, by right? ordering it through Amazon or ordering it through the publisher, Kendall Hunt Publishing Company. Here's another fact. Many journalists and many writers want to have a good relationship with the New York Times because of its impact. They would like to have their work published in the New York Times, or they would like to have their view, their book reviewed in the New York Times. They would like to be quoted in the New York Times. Columbia Journalism Review, you know, proved to me uh, the fear of the New York Times. I can imagine that if that fear of the New York Times was not that pervasive, my book would be much more widely available. I think I'm confident enough uh, to put it that way. People in Europe have been able to order the book much more efficiently and readily and to receive it much more quicker than people that are trying to get the book here in the United States. So that's another fact that I can reveal. I think that's the best sort of answers that I can provide in response to that last question. Mr. Alimadi, Thank you very much indeed for sharing with us your expertise. You are a star. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored. This podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge. The next episode is entitled The Unexpected Butterfly Effect of a Great Teacher. An interview with Mr. Robert Pacilio an award-winning retired public school teacher in the USA and a writer. It will go live on October 9th, 2023. A special thank you to Professor Ami Omara Otonu, former UNESCO Chair in Human Rights. His kind contribution has made this podcast possible. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.